Chapter 26 of Wilderness Path, a novel by Mary Jane Schneider. Home of the Bergfrau. The early morning sun tinged the branches of the bare maples with a hint of spring. Placing her precious packets of seeds in her apron pocket, Maria went to the barn for her hoe. A robin waited for her on the garden wall. She laid out the packets carefully, her mother's garden, another year without her mother at her side. In her final years, her mother had watched while Maria planted. Now her mother was gone. It was her garden alone. Maria loved the spring ritual of planting. The beans and squash, the zinnias and marigolds, all in their ordered rows. Kneeling, her planting had the feeling of sacred time and space. Intent on her work, she did not hear the horse and rider until they were almost upon her. Maria looked up to see someone running toward her, her hair falling across her face, her clothes stained with blood. Could this be Hannah? Not bothering to tether her horse, Hannah ran toward Maria. Sobbing, she collapsed into Maria's arms as the seeds scattered in the dirt. You told me I could be a healer. But I couldn't stop the bleeding. I could not save Becky. I couldn't save Becky. Hannah, Hannah, what has happened? Maria stroked Hannah's face. Tell me, what is wrong? Hannah let herself be guided into the house and onto Maria's bed. She couldn't stop shivering even though Maria covered her with a quilt. As Maria handed her a cup of tea, Hannah told her about Rebecca's death. I couldn't stop the bleeding. I held on as hard as I could, but it wouldn't stop. I had given her the tea to stop the bleeding. It didn't help. She was my brother's wife. I couldn't save her. Maria put her arms around Hannah. What a shock for you, Leipkin. And to travel the miles from New Canaan with those images pounding in your head. Hannah, my dear Hannah, be still and rest. I know what it is like to lose a mother, one who bled to death just like Rebecca. It happened so fast. It was years ago, but it is a nightmare that I will never forget. I am glad you're here, she continued. I'll take care of you. I will send young Jacob to tell your parents where you are. You need to rest, Maria said as she took Hannah's hand. You can stay here as long as you need to. I can't take away those terrible memories, but I can comfort you. David smoothed the wood with his draw knife. He needed something to do. He was alone. Exhausted, Elizabeth and Peter had already gone to bed. A brilliant spring day, flowers blooming, birds singing. But Rebecca's funeral had turned it to darkness. Funerals are for old people, he thought, for remembering their long and useful lives, not for the young, not for Rebecca. During the funeral, David sat beside Elizabeth and held her hand. She could not stop trembling. The preacher had tried to give them words of consolation. In my father's house, there are many rooms, he had told them. 
but grief had overpowered the words. Even the funeral dinner at the Gaymans was a bittersweet reminder of the young couple's wedding, less than a year earlier. David thought about Joshua, sitting through the service without moving. He had seemed to be apart from the grief, apart from the consolation. Except for one brief moment when the men brought in the lid for the coffin, he touched Rebecca's face. All the love for his dead wife was revealed in that one touch. Then he backed away, turned, and left the room. They had found him standing by the open grave, waiting for them. David got up from his bench. Even working with his wood could not soothe his distress. A walk, perhaps, before sundown. As he walked down the path, he saw a horse and rider coming toward him. Joshua slid down from his horse. Your parents are sleeping, said David. Shall I wake them? Joshua held the reins. No, I came to see you. I want to tell... I want you to tell them of my plans. I am leaving New Canaan. I can't stay in our empty house without Rebecca. I can't work in the fields beside Father Gaiman. To each other, we will be a constant reminder of our loss. Joshua paused. I have arranged everything. One of the Sensenig boys will help Father Gaiman with the fields. Esther will take care of baby Rebecca for me. Jacob will clean out my house and store everything in his barn. He took a step toward his horse. I am staying with Esther and Jacob tonight. In the morning, I'll start for Germantown. I need to be with people who are not a part of what happened. I will apprentice myself to someone. Maybe I can work in Christopher Sawyer's print shop. He turned toward David. Will you tell my parents? I can't face them right now. My mother will cry. I can't bear to see her cry. My father will not try to stop me, but I will see the pain in his eyes. Joshua stood, waiting. David studied his face. The youthful sparkle gone, replaced by the dull determination of one who needs to survive somehow. Unbidden, images of his grandmother's funeral in Moselkern came to him. He said softly, I will tell your parents. They may not understand, but I do. He placed his hand on Joshua's arm. Go with God, but come back home when you are ready. Your daughter has lost her mother. She should not have to lose her father as well. A quiet time of day. The afternoon sun sent its warming rays through the open kitchen door. The sound of horses' hooves and then footsteps disturbed the stillness. Maria blocked the doorway as a man, walking with a crutch, came toward her. You must be David, she said. Have you come to take Hannah home? David looked at the woman, strong in her loving. She is what Hannah needs now. I didn't come to take her home, he said softly. I brought her some clothes. Her parents just want to know that she is all right. Maria looked at the young man, not demanding in his love. He has grown grief and understands. He will care for Hannah when she returns home. 
Of course, she answered. They must be worried. I can't see him, Hannah said, when Maria told her that David was at the door. But ask him about the baby, about the funeral. Maria returned to the porch. Sit down, David. We'll talk here so we won't disturb Hannah. She is still too hurt to see anyone. She wants to know about the baby. She is fine. Esther says it is like having twins. And her parents? Elizabeth is ill with the fever again. Father Johann comes every day. He said to tell Hannah that he is praying for her. She wants to know if he went to the funeral. Yes, I sat beside her mother and father. I held her mother's hand during the service. She couldn't stop trembling. David weighed his words, then continued. Another sadness. Joshua left for Germantown the day after the funeral. We have not heard from him. I won't tell Hannah about her mother or about Joshua. I'll tell her later when she is better, Maria said. It is too late in the day for you to leave. I'll make supper and you can sleep on the porch tonight. She rose. Tell her parents that Hannah needs rest and time to recover her strength. She is not ready to come home. Maria knew about broken bones, about bruises and fevers. But to heal the broken heart, the bruised spirit, this was a new challenge. When Hannah could not sleep, Maria recited the familiar psalms her mother had taught her. On nights when Hannah awakened with nightmares, Maria calmed her with mint tea. During the day, Hannah protested she was too tired to get out of bed, except to go to the privy. Maria tried refusing to bring her food, but that didn't work. Hannah stopped eating. Finally, Maria came upon a new plan. I am going out to gather my healing herbs, but when I come back, will you teach me to read? I have never learned, you know. When we lived in Mainz, my parents were too poor to send me to school, and by the time we came here, I was too old. Hannah stirred. She had not realized that Maria could not read. Maria would love to read about the birth of Jesus, his young mother far from home. Hannah thought about those who came to Jesus for healing, the crippled man on the roof, the lepers, the blind man given his sight. She had felt Maria's healing touch through her own dark days. One beautiful April morning, Maria wiped away her tears when she saw Hannah, dressed and combed, waiting for her on the bench, Maria's family Bible in her lap. Slowly, ever so slowly, Maria and the timeless words of St. Luke breathed life back into Hannah. They read about the young pregnant Mary visiting an older pregnant Elizabeth. Martha, distressed and worried over her dinner, bent over woman in the back row of the synagogue. Then one day Hannah said, I'm ready to go with you for your healing herbs. They walked through the woods together through Maria's beloved apple orchard, now alive with blossoms, down the rocky path to the stream in Hidden Valley. As the new green leaves appeared, Hannah was able to open the tight knot of her grief to the warm and healing sun.
How could we have gotten through these troubled days without you? Peter asked Father Johann as they talked at the bridge. Ah, our children, Johann answered. If only we could take away their suffering. He looked out over the stream. Thomas, who knows where he is and what he has endured. Joshua, wandering the streets of Germantown. And Hannah, with more pain than any young woman should have to bear. Thank God that you have David. He has become like a son. Yes, thank God for David, Peter said. But my concern is for Elizabeth. She lies in bed and says that she cannot get up. She seems to have lost her desire to get better. The spring rain came warm and penetrating, blessing the waiting earth. A good day to study words. Hannah opened the Bible to the book of Ruth. One of my favorite Bible stories, Maria. Let me read the first chapter to you, and then we'll work on the words. As Hannah read, with Maria beside her, the words came alive. The older woman and her younger daughter-in-law, who left her own family to go with her. Entreat me not to leave thee. Hannah stopped. I don't want to go home. I want to stay here with you, Maria. You have become my mother, and I am your daughter. Moving abruptly to the fireplace, Maria stirred the stew in the kettle. She turned. Hannah, you have become a daughter to me. You have filled a void in my life. She came toward her. We have become like mother and daughter, and so we will be for the rest of our lives. She sat down, but you cannot stay. She took Hannah's hand. You have a family who needs you. Your mother reminds me of the bent-over woman whom Jesus healed. She has been bent over for many years, first with her illness and now with her distress over Joshua. She needs the touch of your healing hand. Hannah looked away as if she did not want to hear what Maria was saying. Maria continued, And David, patient David, is waiting for you to come home. He loves you so much that he will not intrude into your life until you let him in. She moved to face Hannah. In your obsession with Thomas, you have shut him out. Maria watched Hannah gather buttercups along the path to the woods. We have seen this spring arrive together, Maria thought, but it's time for her to leave. I don't want her to leave, but she's ready. How can I convince her of that? I need a sign. Startled, she looked up to see her sign. Peter Weaver was coming down the path to the cabin. Seeing her father, Hannah ran toward him. Papa, I'm so glad you came to visit. Maria and I have been working in her garden. Let me show you. Peter looked at his daughter. Hannah, I didn't come to visit. We would like you to come home. He sat down on the bench. Your mother's fever has come back again. She needs you. She needs me. She has always needed me, ever since Rachel was buried. Hannah turned away. Peter looked at his daughter, sitting quietly on the bench beside him, the buttercups in her lap. Your mother is afraid. She lost Rachel. She has lost Joshua. She is afraid of losing you. Peter took the flowers from his daughter. You have been away two months. She believes that you are not coming back. 
Even David's assurances do not comfort her. I don't know how to comfort her either. Hannah looked at her father, the deepened wrinkles on his face, his large hands, crippled and calloused from years of work. You love her very much. She came to this land with me, he said. She left her mother crying at the dock when we boarded the boat to Rotterdam. She slept under the stars because of my dream. She didn't want another baby, but he stopped. Hannah took her father's hand. He continued. Those first years were hard. She left Rotterdam a healthy woman and arrived in Penn's woods with an illness that never goes away completely. You surely understand how this illness has worn her down. You remember how sick she was after Rachel was born? After Rachel died, she focused her life on you. She wants the best for you. Peter stood up. Will you come home with me? David has been wonderful to both of us. He's been our cook, our nurse, and our companion on the long nights when we cannot sleep. Yes, David has become like a son to you, Hannah said, surprised by her own words. Maria listened to the conversation in silence. Hannah took his hand. Have you heard from Joshua? Not a word. Peter looked away. Coming to Penn's Woods was my foolish dream. I am sorry that I didn't tell any of you that I was working so hard because I had to pay back the money I had borrowed for our land. It has not been a foolish dream, Papa. Would Joshua want to be a peasant along the Rhine? Would I want to be a scullery maid in some prince's castle? Papa, your dream gave us so much. Hannah turned to her father. Maria has been so good to me. I don't want to leave her, but you are right. It's time to go home. Well, I've been reporting for the first half of the book mostly on synchronicities that occurred during the first reading of this book to my, my daughter um, as being read by my, my beloved to both of us, really, at that time. Ironically, in a late 1700s farmhouse, uh, this is all maybe a reminder for those of you who have been listening since chapter one, uh, the farmhouse is a late 1700s farmhouse right at the bottom um, and maybe a little bit up another hill um, across from where uh, Mountain Mary, or in this book, her name is Die Bergfrau, uh, she's a local leg legend, and so there's still there still is a space where the um, the foundation of her home was, and we were in this farmhouse, like across the mountain, up another hill from where her homestead was was rooted. Uh, so any of the chapters on Diebergfrau are always very special to me, and. So just a couple of short, brief synchronicities here, um, because some syn synchronicities have been popping up now, currently as I'm reading the book again. Um, and I have been attributing that to the fact that this is where uh, part of, this is the land, the Oli Valley, uh, is the, the earth and the water um, and the airscape 
at my, at least my father's side of the family where they took their roots. Um, and And this novel was written by not my blood family member, but I'm calling her my great aunt because she's my great aunt through marriage. And so she has a similar um, earth and lineage root to this land through the European settlers. Uh, and so, you know, that's what I attribute these earlier synchronicities and current synchronicities to is just this familial lineage, ancestral land connection. So uh, one, of the, one of the simple synchronicities in this chapter is the fact that Hannah, it, Hannah's favorite book of the Bible is Ruth. And my favorite book of the Bible growing up was also Ruth. Um, and then my second favorite would have been Esther, uh, the book of Esther and the book of Ruth. But I actually, in the book of Ruth, uh, you, if you read it, you learn that Ruth's mother-in-law's name is Naomi, and that's my daughter's name, and that is indeed where I got the name Naomi from, was from the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And continuing the name game, Hannah, right, whose favorite book of the Bible is Ruth, Hannah is the name that I found on the gravestone at my my beloved, my partner's um his great-great-great-great-grandparents were buried and married at this church in Amityville, about 20 minutes away from the farmhouse where we first read the book Wilderness Path. While we were there looking at gravestones, the only Widener that he found was Hannah Widener. And it's just, it's just too funny how there's that Hannah Widener that actually is you know, on, that name is on the gravestone at the church where his um, earliest ancestors that he could track are buried. And then in MJ's book, Hannah Weaver is, is one of the main characters. And Hannah Weaver has this amazing opportunity um, because of her father's, what he has called in this chapter, his foolish dream to come to the new world. And I just love that she ended this chapter by correcting him and reminding him that the only opportunity she had back in along the Rhine in old Europe was to probably become a scullery maid. And here in the middle of nowhere Penn's woods, she met Mountain Mary or De Bergfrau, the the legacy healer of the area where I grew up. Um, and she has this amazing opportunity to tap into a part of herself that would never have been touched along the Rhine back in old Europe. So, um, yeah, I just love that she, that, that Hannah Weaver and or Hannah Widener, and I don't know, I actually haven't found in my family tree or genealogy a Hannah Widener. Um, but I feel obviously mystically connected to her. I love that she is um, bringing that affirmation kind of full circle because 
there has been so much hardship for her family. There has been so much hardship for everyone on this land. The European settlers, the native people, before the Europeans showed up, there, there, was, there was war on this land. And, you know, they brought more war. Um, and all around, you know, it's just a hard time. And yes, there could be, there could be ways in which history could be redone and behaviors redirected so that there could have continued a more harmonious relationship between the Europeans who showed up fresh off the boat and quote, took over um, and the native people. Yes, um, I do hope for, I do hope for that in my secret kind of dreams that I could go back in time and, and preserve that harmonious relationship between um, native people, European settlers and the land, right? Because the land is a, is a player in this as well. And so those three parties, if there could have been some type of alliance, um, that would have been ideal. Um, but bringing, you know, the European settlers were bringing with them a legacy of, of hierarchical ownership and patriarchy and kingdoms, etc. Um, so, you know, that's no excuse for their eventual behaviors, but I can see through MJ's writing that she is helping us to pull out and see that there were original folk, there were people who did have a harmonious relationship with the Lenape and with the Algonquin speakers and with the land. And they really desired, especially the Bergfrau, as we learned in the earlier chapters, she became friends with the native shamans and she was respected and regarded as a healer, just like the Lenape healers. And so I'm encouraged by that to know, to know that this story also exists among the muck and the mire of, you know, the, the general, most more more um, overall, what panned out over time was the all of the war and the annihilation of the native people that ensued. And so one more aspect I'd like to highlight in this chapter is that I found interesting is that a chapter or two ago, um, I spoke about you know midwifery and just how these early practices, you know, they've continued to build upon like the early midwifery that began in Europe, you know, and then they came over here and it, it slowly kept building. And midwifery is a beautiful, I had a midwife, and so I'm, maybe it's biased, but midwifery is a beautiful and excellent field in regards to women's birthing and women having the right to birth in the way that their bodies are organically meant to birth. Um, and so just two chapters ago, we saw how some of these early tragedies occurred. Um, and it wasn't due to midwifery not being, you know, advanced enough, but there were no doctors. And some of the, like the doctors didn't even know why some of these things occurred because our general medicine and technology just hadn't allowed us to figure these things out yet. Um, but midwifery, and people who practice the midwife profession, they had they they brought us forward through these hard lessons 
um, and the trauma of losing another human being when your hands are the hands that are to protect them and bring them through the birthing portal. Um, so now I just take, take a moment to like honor those early midwives and the, the trauma that they um, incurred in advancing and, and just being in service to the, the population, like the, the population populating of humans as, as we knew how. Um, and as we knew how to to protect women in in pregnancy and birth, so thank you, those early midwives. And it's interesting that Hannah has her mentor to be able to go back to and receive healing, like the he, uh, healing for the healer. And this chapter really highlights the beauty of that. And I found it interesting that Hannah found her strength again in being able to teach her healer, her mentor, how to read. And just the reciprocity, the mutuality, the kind of like, there's no guru here. We're all learning and we all have something really special and unique to offer one another. And Maria kind of uses that magic uh, to bring Hannah up and out of the melancholia of of the trauma of losing um, a, a new mother. And one of the first things that they open up to is, is Mary, um, the mother of Jesus, which of course is a birthing story. And I happen to have been studying um, ancient birthing practices, especially immaculate conceptions, um, because the birth of Jesus is not the only immaculate conception that has occurred and is in religious uh, recorded in religious documents or just any kind of documents that have been handed down, usually in more like secret orders uh, like religion. Um, and the Gnostic Gospels or the Gospels that were not included in the King James Bible, um, the Infancy Gospel of James, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, um, these are all people who were kind of in the same circle as uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, but the, you know, for political reasons, social reasons, their gospels were left out of the Bible. And these gospels also reveal that there were some ancient, ancient mystery traditions and mystery communities connected back to ancient Egypt that were working together to bring forth the Messiah. And that Mother Mary was actually, she was a part of this order of women who had been practicing immaculate conception or birth without um, a man's seed for, for thousands of years. Um, and so just, you know, whatever, whatever that means, you know, I, I am not saying that I believe this, or I really do like the story of, because it, it, it just makes so much more sense to me that there was a really highly intelligent community-wide plan that was bringing forth the, the drama of the Christ or bringing forth the Messiah, bringing forth just, you know, even if you don't believe in Jesus, just believe in, if you believe in just the fact that a really special child could be born, you know, like we have savants today and we have like your Einsteins and your, um, oh, the guy that paints, uh, 
the artist Michelangelo, right? Like we know throughout history that these really special beings have been born. And um, maybe if you could just see Jesus as one of those special people, he was a radical politically and socially. He was a healer. Um, he could he could perform miracles, which you might could be akin to like some of our street magicians of today. Um, and I don't use magic and or miracle as one being better than the other. I think they all come from the same root of being able to see beyond these bodies and use use the energy of the land, use the energy of the elements, um, and use our connection with the divine or our connection to the um, to the underworld. You know, if if you want to just kind of draw in all the different traditions as a as a way to bring forth and manifest something beautiful into this reality so yeah so it, it always has made more sense to me that this really special being yeshua or jesus came forth not just from an angel randomly telling this young girl that she's going to you know give birth um, but that there was a more familial and community-wide ancient kind of prophecy that was being held secret, right? Because this was going to be a radical turn and a radical takeover for society at that time and place. Um, and yeah, it just made more sense to me when I began learning that this, uh, these ancient, ancient orders were passing down traditions knowing that there would be a young woman, a, a priestessly young woman who could sit in deep meditation with something like an angel's energy and receive into her body an energetic pregnancy that would manifest as a real human pregnancy and that that child would have the frequency of a totally different realm. And so I love that here are these midwives um, who, you know, Die Bergfrau, Mountain Mary could have very well have been mentoring a young woman in midwifery. You know, just where I grew up, across the hill from where I lived for six months last year, and that they were sitting and they were having this mutually healing exchange over the story of Mary birthing Jesus, which happens to have, for me, these really ancient roots of, um, or this really mystical story that has really ancient roots that I have, um, that has brought me deeper into my, my healing practice and my desire to leave like the therapeutic clinical realm and work more with the medicine wheel and Celtic tradition and coming into my roots and providing, um, what I would call alternative healing modalities. So, oh, so that's enough from me about this really fun and beautiful chapter, chapter 26, the home of Die Bergfrau. And oh, how, you know, how deep kinship I feel with Hannah Weaver slash Hannah Widener. Um, as my maiden name is Christiana Widener. I don't even think I dropped that yet. That's my father's um that's my father's family name. Yeah. So 
yeah, the kinship that I feel in this chapter and the synchronicities of the similarities has been a beautiful experience for me. And thank you for sharing and listening and maybe learning a couple of cool things from just what I've been up to in my, my little journey here with this book and in my own journey of coming home to being a healer, a healer for the people. All right, thank you. Chapter 27 of Wilderness Path, a novel by Mary Jane Schneider. On the Susquehanna. I can't figure you out, the stranger observed. You dress like a Lenape, you cook like a Lenape, but you're a white man. Barefoot, crouching beside a small fire, Thomas turned and squinted in the direction of the voice. Holding a fish speared on a stick, he was preparing his first real meal in days. He turned back to the fire. Days of traveling on the Frankstown path had made him suspicious of all men, white or Indian. His arms and legs still sore from the gauntlet, he had moved cautiously east toward the Susquehanna River. But the Frankstown path had offered him little protection, not from animals, not from people. He hid from every traveler. Without sunrising, he would not be welcomed by the Lenape. Armed only with a bow and a few arrows, he might be killed for sport by the Shawnee, and, dressed as a Lenape, he would be scorned by white men. Best to avoid them all. By the time he had crossed the Susquehanna River, he was tired, hungry, and in no mood to talk to any man. He studied the man on the well-groomed horse, looked at him from his broad-brimmed hat to his sturdy shoes. He was as well-groomed as his horse a man of some importance. Are you afraid that I will take your dinner from you? asked the stranger. I have food and to spare. My son and I have just come from Lancaster with full saddlebags. Thomas turned his fish. He struggled to understand the unfamiliar English words. The stranger dismounted and sprawled on the ground. You look like you could use some food. A gun, a horse, a coat. He picked up on one of the tattered moccasins Thomas had flung on the grass. Certainly you could use a new pair of shoes. Look, I really will not harm you. Where have you come from? From Kitane, along the Frankstown path. Kitaning, you traveled the Frankstown path from Kintaning, without a horse and without a gun. You must be Lenape, although a bearded one. The stranger turned at the sound of hoofbeats. Here is my son. We are traveling to Shemokin. Philip and I are taking presents of condolescence to my old friend Shikalani. His son, unhappy Jake, was killed in a skirmish with the Catalbas. He added, but we want to camp here for the night. The stranger held out his hand. My name is Conrad Weiser. Stretching out on the ground, Thomas took off his wet shoes and massaged his aching feet. He longed for a pair of moccasins. In spite of his sore feet, he marveled at his good luck. A refugee without food or clothing, he now had both. He also had a horse and a destination. Come with my son Philip and me, Wiser had said to him as they prepared to leave in the morning. How could he refuse Wiser's generous offer? 
Rain had halted their travel. Philip had started a fire to dry out their clothes. Crouched under the ledge of a rock, Wiser was in a talkative mood. Young Lenape, can I speak to you in German? I detect the Rhine in your accent. He continued without waiting for an answer. What a pleasure to speak in German again. In Philadelphia, all they speak is English. I am right, am I not? You know the Lenape well, but how did you become a Lenape? Wiser paused, waiting. Whatever reason, no matter. Thomas reached for his shoes. I became a Lenape because circumstance put me in their path. I was traveling west when I was pinned by a falling tree in a mudslide. A Lenape family rescued me. Before I had completely recovered, they moved to Kithadhane and took me with them. Thomas was silent. Not intimidated by the silence, Wiser had continued. I am a German who is also part Indian, but for me it was different. He reminisced about his boyhood in Württemberg. After my mother died, my father sailed to the New York colony with eight children. He paused, poked the ground with a stick. When my father remarried, I felt I was not wanted in my home. At seventeen, I went to live with Kwan Nant, chief of the Mohawks, for eight months. There I learned their language and their customs. But you live in Tolpehawken, Thomas said. After I came home, I married and tried to farm in the New York colony, but it was hard. My wife's parents had traveled south along the Susquehanna to Tupahawken. I followed them with my wife, Anne, Eve, and our four children. Philip was two when we moved. We have made a good life here in Penn's colony. He looked at Thomas. I have great respect for those on whose land we live. Respect. The Iroquois negotiated the treaty with the provincial council that took the Lenape land away from them, Thomas said. Wiser countered. Young Lenape, you must understand the relationship of the Lenape and the Iroquois. Early on, the provincial council saw that the Lenape, though friendly, were hopelessly fragmented and weak. Sasunon was their honored chief at first, but later he became a joke as he drank away his heritage. But the Iroquois took control of the Susquehanna, said Thomas. They pushed the Lenape out. Young Lenape, said Wiser, you have heard only one side of the story. When the Iroquois took control of the Susquehanna, the provincial council saw their strength. The Iroquois sent Shekelami to Shemokin to be their vice-regent, the peacekeeper for both the Iroquois and provincial council. I am his interpreter. Many times we have traveled back and forth between Onondaga and Philadelphia, and there has been peace even with the Cherokees to the south. He sighed, but with the Catawbas, that is a different story. Philip looked out from the ledge. The rain has stopped. As he rose, Wiser continued talking. Yes, I can understand why the Lenape are bitter. There have been mistakes. The rum, a terrible curse. And what of us? We Germans came to this country by the hundreds. We wanted to get away from the warring princes. Some of us fled from the Catholic Church. We were eager for this new good land. 
He paused. What did you know about the Lenape when you stepped off the boat? Riding north toward Shemokin, Thomas pondered, this man wiser in his words. He seemed so sure of himself. Dismissed the Lenape, the Lenape as weak, yet he was never rescued by them as I was. They could have left me to die, stolen all of my gold, yet they cared for me, delayed their own journey because of me. I know their strengths, but some of the settlers' fears are justified. The stealing of Sarah Bidler, the rumors that some Lenape in the Ohio lands are ready to turn back and massacre any white settler beyond the Susquehanna. Even I have felt Lenape cruelty as well as their hospitality. What is the answer? Wiser seems so sure that his answer is correct. I am still searching. Chief Shekalami's house in Shemokin was a castle among the huts along the Susquehanna River. Its wooden floor kept the old chief's feet warm in winter and prevented the snakes from finding shelter in summer. The shingles that covered it formed a snug protection for the chief and his family, a royal privilege built some years before by Conrad Weiser and eight strong German friends. Hunched by a small fire, the Iroquois chief rubbed his hands together distractedly as Weiser entered and strode toward him. Greetings, old friend. The chief rose unsteadily. Weiser, is it really you? Weiser moved closer and held out his hand. Yes, here I am. Along with my son Philip and a young traveler we found beside the Susquehanna, Welcome, my good friend, said Shikalami, taking his hand. Why are you here? It is time for spring planting, and surely Mrs. Weiser needs you at home. You are right, my friend, said Weiser, but we have a special mission. I know your sadness over the death of your son, unhappy Jake, at the hands of the Catawbas. Philip brought me the news from Virginia. Such a waste. He opened his saddlebag. The Provincial Council has sent three match coats and a half-dozen silk handkerchiefs to wipe away your tears. Wiser held up one of the coats. Here is something to make you smile again. Try it on. Shigalami allowed Wiser to put on the coat. He stroked the gold embroidery on the sleeve. And I have some good news for you and your Iroquois brothers. The Catawbas are willing to make peace. The governor of Virginia wishes to hold a peace conference in Williamsburg. Shekalami fingered the gold braid. That is good news, he turned to Wiser. But, my friend, you did not come all this way just to bring me presents. Wiser laughed. You know me too well. Our years together have made each of us wise. Yes, I have another reason for coming. The French are threatening our lands, both from the north and from the west. The Provincial Council is as worried as those calm Quakers have ever been. Wiser patted the lapels of the chief's new coat. Shekalami, I need to meet with the Iroquois chiefs. The Council wants the Iroquois to renew their pledge of loyalty and neutrality. The French must be given no foothold anywhere. 
But before my father can go to Onondaga, Philip interrupted, we must go home. My mother is more influential than the provincial council. Runners must carry my message east to the Mohawks and west to the Senecas, said Weiser. Shikalami, you must go to Onondaga with the summons. They will listen to you, but you will need a sturdy companion for your journey. He turned to Thomas. And who but this young Lenape traveling with me? Thomas searched Weiser's impassive face. This was his plan all along. I should have sensed there was a reason for his generosity. But to travel with the great Shekelami and meet the Iroquois chiefs in council, what an opportunity. I have much to gain and nothing to lose. He found himself saying, I will go to Onondaga with Chief Shekelami, but my name is not young Lenape, it is Thomas, and I will need some moccasins. So that's chapter 26 and chapter 27. And as I was reflecting in chapter 26 on around my kinship with Tana and Mountain Mary or De Bergfrau and the land that this all took place on and Mary Jane Schneider, um, it was very appropriate that the next chapter is on the Susquehanna because we've mostly been going back and forth between New Canaan and Kahane, or the European settlers and the Lenape, and Thomas being with the Lenape. And so chapter 27 brings us back to the intersection between, you know, these, these peoples. Um, and it also brings me, you know, chapter 26 was pretty focused on my father's side or my maiden name. And now chapter 27 on the Susquehanna, some of these landmarks and this really early, early history uh, eventually develops into small villages of settlers as Europeans began to take, take up space along the Susquehanna River, um, and specifically Marysville, um, being, you know, relative to where, to where I sit or to where the Oli Valley is, the wilderness path. Um, Marysville would be, well, obviously west, right? Because the Susquehanna is west of Oli Valley, but it, a little bit north. Um, uh, actually, right, like above Harrisburg, if you're familiar with the state of Pennsylvania. And so I know that my great-great-grandmother lived in Marysville, and I'm currently on the search to find more information about Marysville itself and about my mother's mothers and her great-great-grandmother, um, how many generations and what the lineage is um, on my mother's side in Marysville on the Susquehanna. Um, so again, just want to thank Mary Jane Schneider for writing this and opening her imagination for these stories to pour forth um, as they weave the real actual um, facts, uh, as much as we can tell, about our, our ancestry and our history here, um, and doing it so delicately, gracefully, and beautifully in regards to the tragedies and traumas that, that occurred here on this land uh, between peoples of different nations. 
between different peoples of different colors of skin. Um, and just, you know, the, the other side of it, the not just the history facts, but the, the willingness to open up and allow a story to pour forth and just uh, imagine very practically and grounded, like what could have been some storylines and interactions that occurred and I have found that this really helps it to bring alive in me the, the history that has shaped our nation and the history that has shaped my own lineages uh, in the Oli Valley and on the Susquehanna, my actual specific mother and father lineages that happen to be grounded there in chapter 26 and chapter 27. So again, thank you for listening. If you would like to support um, my recording of this book and discussion of, of the topics and the synchronicities that have uh, arisen, arose, arose, um, you can go to patreon.com backslash loved by the water. And that is my kind of alternative healing practice space. Likewise, you can also check out my other work at Linktree. And so you go to Linktree, the website, and you can search me at, at Loved by the Water as well. And there you'll find um, more about my healing, um, my alternative healing practice as I've been inspired and immersed in some more folk kind of traditions. And lastly, I'll just, I would add that um, on Patreon or on Linktree, you have options to to give monetarily to support me in this work, to support me in the other work that you'll find on my Patreon platform. And my goal is to connect more people with this historical fiction and to develop the connections because there are a few historical societies who are big fans of Mary Jane Schneider's work. And it would be really helpful for me to be able to print some more hard copies of this book because uh, some of the historical societies are selling them and they're sold out. And I'd also like to get one in every historical society library, as this is such a beautiful and thoughtful um, piece of literature that has been so inspiring for me personally. And I hope that it will also inspire others out there who are interested in connecting with our ancestors, our lineages, and the land. And thank you. See you again soon.